1: Welcome to Behind the Headlights, Speed Channel's documentary series that tells the stories of some very special automobiles, vehicles so unique that they changed history and affected the moods and attitudes of generations. Hello and welcome to a very appropriate venue for this episode of Behind the Headlights, which features Ford's GT40 Mark IV. This is the legendary road circuit at Le Mans in France, site of the famed 24 hours, where Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt's car became a racing legend. When a Ford Motor Company bid to buy Enzo Ferrari's company in 1962 failed, Ford President Henry Ford II decided he would conquer the Italian racing king on the world's most prestigious automotive stage, Le Mans what resulted was the most determined and expensive motor racing campaign ever witnessed with a no excuse to lose philosophy. In this episode of Behind the Headlights, we'll take a closer look at the Ford GT40 and see how a combination of Yankee ingenuity, British technology, and Henry Ford's determination to win at all costs made the car an international and timeless sensation. I think the thing that made it a great accomplishment, an American company decided that it was going to go to Europe and win against all the European companies, something that had never been done before. Nobody but Henry Ford could make that decision. Even though the GT40 had won the most renowned race in the world for Henry Ford in 1966, there was still an air of discontent emanating from the deuce. Ford entered both the Mark II and Mark IV model GT40s at Le Mans, and they set the fastest Mulsaw straightaway speeds in qualifying. For the race itself, Shelby American and Holman & Moody each entered three cars, two Mark IVs and a single Mark II. The prospect of driving Ford's new GT40 Mark IV brought together two of the greatest drivers of their era, Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt. While both were fabulous drivers, their racing backgrounds were entirely different. Gurney's experience was on the world sports car circuits and as a Formula One driver. Gurney was a veteran of the Le Mans race, having had several unsuccessful goes. Foyt was an oval track driver and had just won the Indy 500 a month earlier. By the morning, the Fords were 1st, 5th and 6th, with three Ferrari P4s between them. One of those Ferraris, driven by Gunther Klaas and Peter Sutcliffe, dropped out due to a loss of oil pressure. Foyt and Gurney, who'd started the race at a blistering pace, hung on to win. The race was only the last three hours. You saved the car, and then you had the last three hours. There's the checkered flag veteran Dan Gurney from California, the hard-charging A.J. Foyt from Texas. Together, they covered 3,267 miles at an average speed of 135 miles an hour. Both new records. Ford had convincingly demonstrated its initial victory was no fluke. The win in 67 was an all-American effort that established the GT40 as a legend.
2: My name is Luigi
1: Canetti, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
0: And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? (laughs) Nothing up my sleeve. Presto!
1: (laughs) No doubt about it. I gotta get another hat.
2: Now here's something we hope you'll
0: really like. welcome you're tuned into nostalgic Vintage cars and i'm your show host robert running your computers and google tantalk 1340.com and you can see me me live here in the studios yeah i think that's facebook and i think that was youtube or that was youtube that was facebook whatever it doesn't make any difference and we're also streamed live hey don't forget that's where you find out all about us on our website golfstream and if you missed any of our past shows don't forget you can go to our archive page and listen to those shows and um, anyway, we got a great show for you this evening. I got a very, 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 very special guest and a good friend coming on this evening, and uh, I'm really excited because in another couple weeks, the movie, the all-time greatest movie, probably ever, is coming out, and it's called Ford versus Ferrari. Oh yes, ladies and gentlemen, Ford versus Ferrari, and we kicked their butt in 1966, 67, 68, and again we repeated it in 69. So. Uh, that oh, we actually did it in 1965 too, because Carroll Shelby did it with the um, Cobra Daytona Coupe, and won not only the Le Mans race, but he also won the World Manufacturers Championship. So cool. And in fact, the Cobra won in uh, their class in 1964 uh, as well. So you know, Carroll Shelby did a pretty good, pretty good uh, deal there. And uh, you know, Carroll he's been on a show before, many many years ago in 2012 before he passed away. And I was really, really honored to have him on the show because he's always been like an inspiration. And, uh, you know, the guy, you know, I always used to ask him a couple things. I said, if you had to give or give out any kind of advice to anybody, what would it be? And he says, probably surround yourself with the best people that you know, the most professional people, because they'll, they'll make you look good and or even better than you are, and follow your passion. And I have to give that same advice to everybody else. Follow your passion and surround yourself with the best of the best, the most professional people in the field that you are pursuing. And um, but anyway, let's jump. Jump, jump right to the FloridaCarShows.com. What's coming up in a couple of weeks? Yes, yes, ladies and gentlemen, SEMA. You hear me talk about it all the time. Scottsdale, Amelia Island, Monterey Collector Car Week, and SEMA. Special Equipment Marketing Association. And that's uh, four days of mayhem, automotive mayhem, in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, uh, what else we got coming up? Well, this weekend, I'm not going to be there, but the Las Vegas Concourse. We had uh, Stuart Sorbeck on last week, Sobeck, um, the founder and chairman of the Vegas Concourse. Uh, this weekend, if you are into British cars and you want to hang loose, Downtown Safety Harbor is having the All-British Car Show all day saturday so i expect to see some of you guys there yes we will be there with miss money penny and uh she will be parked there somewhere along the side of the road and uh cigar city concourse that's uh coming up next month november i think 9th 10th 11th or 8 9 10 that weekend uh, the weekend after semo uh bug jam is also that weekend if you're in the Vees. Heck yeah, cool. And I wanna shout out a special thanks to our friends over there at Ruth Eckert Hall and uh, my new best buddy at the Clearwater Jazz Holiday, Hampton, who is the media director for the Clearwater Jazz Holiday because it was the 40th anniversary of the Clearwater Jazz Holiday. And uh, the two top bands, were blood, sweat, and tears. Chicago, and then on Sunday was uh, Alison Krauss, and I got to tell you, Chicago did an amazing performance. It was definitely worth being there. We enjoyed it. Saw a lot of friends. In fact, uh, a big shout out to uh, Don Reese, the Hollywood Connections, because she was there too, and she put us live on the uh, on her little show on a little video. So, but anyway, so she was there and doing some interviews and talking to some people, and we were obviously doing the same. But it was a spectacular evening. And again, special thank goes out to my buddy Hampton. Uh, there at uh, the Jazz Holiday. As a matter of fact, uh, on a side note, the very first Jazz Holiday was in Clearwater in 1979-80, I guess 80, but in 79 we were working. And I was on the original committee, and I think our first guest back then was Woody Herman. And when we originally started it, it was to kind of commemorate and honor some of the uh, legendary jazz musicians out of the 30s, 40s, you know, the swing era, and, and, uh, and, and they did a very good job. And then, of course, now it's kind of evolved into, uh, you know, a little of uh, progressive jazz and rock and roll and a combination of everything. And, of course, the crowd's changing, too. But uh, I think it was Woody Herman was the first one, and I think down the road they had... Uh, Day. Brubeck was there. Just a number of really cool uh, jazz musicians uh, over the years. So, At any rate, uh, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and fire up that Ray Didio here real quick, and we're going to play a little, uh, what do we have, a little CCR? We got a little CCR. How about, let's, uh, let's all run through the jungle, since we're talking about cars of the 60s, and uh, you know, that was the Vietnam era. Here's uh, a very popular song out of that uh, time and uh tune into nostalgic reading cars on Touch That Dial, and I will be right back and our special guest will, will be with us shortly stick around
3: Come enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunneen Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunneen Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunneen Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunneen Visit them online at dunneanbrewery.com.
0: We're back into tuning into Nostalgia and in Cars. Good pick, Tommy. I forgot about putting the sound effects on it, but you got the right one. That's cool. Okay. Uh, anyway, all right. So we got a very special guest coming on. Like I said, the movie's coming out. Um, some of the key movies that were out back in the day, uh, obviously, The King of Cool, Steve McQueen, was Lamar. The original movie, which came out in 1970, and uh, where actually Steve McQueen drove some of his own original stunts. The movie Bullet, um, Vanishing Point was one of my favorite movies. It also came out back then, a really cool automotive show. So uh, that was neat. That had, um, let me think here, Barry Newman. Uh, And uh, that was just a cool show. And I actually saw that down here at the the original Capitol when I moved to Florida here in 71. And that was back when you could, like, pay a buck for a movie and sit there over and over and over all afternoon. I think I knew every detail of that movie. I didn't have a driver's license then, but... uh, they kind of almost got. Even though I was a diehard Ford guy, I was really, really thinking about a Challenger. That was kind of a cool car. But anyway, Tommy, why don't you go ahead and uh, let's fire up the stereo one more time. Let's go ahead and call our guests and get our guests on here because uh, this gentleman has just got. You know, you'd have to do a 20-part segment on this gentleman, and because uh, he's just so, so amazing and so interesting. Hey, here's a little uh, early uh, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, hope you guys are a little uh, hypnotized by this one. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Yes, the
2: same kind of story that seems to come down from long ago. Two friends having coffee together when something flies by the window. It might be out on that lawn, which is why at least half of the playing field. Cause there's no explaining Your imagination can make like you see and feel like a have got God in time Now it's not a meaningless question to Ask if they've been and gone I remember a talk about North Carolina In a strange, strange world You see, the sides were like glass In the thick of a forest without a road And if any man's hand ever made that land Then I think it would have shown. And that's why it seemed like a dream How long have known each other, Ken? I ever break a promise to you? I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. You just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. All right. Warning, Molly. My am
1: I'll go to hell. And that's it, folks. Ferrari wins the 24 hours of Le Mans for the fifth consecutive year.
2: Mr. Ford, Ferrari has a message for you, sir. What did he say? He said Ford makes ugly little cars in ugly factories. And, uh, he you fat, sir.
1: Ferrari at Le Mans so the great Carroll Shelby is gonna build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford correct and how long did you tell them you needed two or three hundred years 90 days (laughs) Ford hates guys like us because we're different we heard he's difficult. Ken? No, no. Ken's a puppy dog.
0: It's awful. There's a problem. The computer will find it.
1: get some Scotch tape and a ball of wool. What are they doing? Making your car faster. Oh, that's Ken Miles is not a Ford man. We're on the verge of something. And now you tell me that I can't have the best man in the world behind the wheel? Give me one reason why I don't fire everyone starting with you. Well, sir, we're
2: lighter, we're faster. That That don't work, we're nastier. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. got a plan. It's high risk.
0: I thought the whole point was to win the damned race.
1: If this were a beauty pageant, we just lost. Looks on everything. Well, hello. This is uh, Jackie Hicks. You're listening to uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
0: Okay, we're back in the June. It's Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And uh, I'm excited to uh, welcome my next special guest. Not only is he a legendary automotive designer, photojournalist, author, he's also, I believe, if I'm correct... The number one employee with Carol Shelby, so and designed the legendary winning Daytona Coupe. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, my good friend Peter Brock. Peter, how you doing? How you doing, Ron? I am doing very, very good. So, uh, how you been out there in Las Vegas, getting ready for SEMA?
4: We are getting ready, actually, for the uh, Las Vegas Concours, which is this weekend. It's oh, that's right, major Concours in Las Vegas. I think it's going to be a great show. And uh, so we're uh, prepping for that, and then the coming right up after that is SEMA. And, of course, that's always one of the major, major events here in Las Vegas.
0: Well, Pete, you know, you've been on my show a number of times. I've known you for a long time, and uh, your, uh, probably your biggest claim to fame is obviously your association with Carroll Shelby, and then uh, BRE Racing, and a number of other things down the road, and, of course, the original design on the Corvette Stingray. And I don't even know where to begin, because uh, everybody's talked about everything with you. But what I would like to do is, because the new movie's coming out here, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, now you had left Ferrari, uh, Shelby at the right about, or were you there when they were developing the original uh, GT40? Well,
4: it's a very interesting thing, because uh, uh, at the time that uh, Ford had bought the design for the Lola Mark 6, which eventually became the GT40, uh, I was trying to get uh, Carol to build a Daytona Cobra. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, we were both going for the same thing, which is to defeat Ferrari. And uh, Carol, of course, didn't have any money and Ford had lots of money. And uh, so they had concentrated totally on their program for the GT40 and brought in, I think they spent close to $12 billion just getting it off the ground there. And we didn't have any money at all, but I had the idea of what I wanted to do, and uh, uh, had convinced Carol that it would had some p- potential. But uh, then, when he, you know, laid out the idea to a number of the other people that we had around us, uh, there was so much negativity. To the idea that we almost didn't get it off the ground. And if it had not been for our key driver, Ken Miles, who went to Carol carefully and quietly said, you know, the kid, because I was the youngest guy on the whole staff over at Shelby's, might have a pretty good program here. He's got some good history behind him, and uh, Ken Miles had known what the Germans had done in the late 30s, and my whole car, my design was based on stuff that had been done in the 1930s, and uh, had all that information it had been lost during the war, and nobody had ever used any of it, all except for one guy in Italy named Ercole Spada, who designed a car for Zagato called the Alfa Romeo TZ1. And if you look at that car, it's a tiny Daytona Coupe. Yeah, And uh, it was being done exactly at the same time that I was doing my car over here. I knew nothing about that car. He didn't know I was doing ours. And yet we came up with exactly the same uh, layout and design for the car. And that car was probably the most successful car that Alfa Romeo has ever won. Uh, any races where it It was extremely popular as a a driver uh, owner driver car in uh, italian racing and then of course we were very successful with the daytona as well but you had to understand that we were actually competing against the ford gt40 in that first year when we ran it in 1964 and uh, ford went to all the races that we went to and they did not finish one race and we won 80% of our races with the Daytona.
0: Now when the, when did Ford come to uh Shelby because Alan Mann comes into that uh um he's into that mix and then I think there was Yes, this was at the
4: end of 1964. Okay. when we were so successful and uh, the GT40 program essentially under John Wire it had been run out of the UK. Ah, uh, by John Wire, who had actually been the team manager for Carroll when he was racing with Aston Martin, had won Le Mans in 1959. Okay. So he and uh, and John Wire were good friends and uh, had mutual trust, but the program just never got off the ground with John over the UK. So uh, uh, Henry Ford II uh, looked at our success with the Daytona uh, in 1964 that we were we were faster than anything else out there and that they had not done anything at all, and simply moved the whole project over to Carroll, um, signed it up, and it became a Ford Motor Company operation for 1965. And that was the end of the Cobra program, because part of that contract was that there would be no more Cobras. In
0: 1965, though, you guys uh, collectively, uh, and basically due to your design with the Daytona Coupe, was the year that you won well, the... That's
4: how good the design was. Yeah. We turned the cars over basically on a Lynn lease program to the Allen Mann team in England. Uh, They were sent over there on bond, and Allen ran the car against all the privateers uh, in Europe in 1965. But here's the big difference. In 1964, we were racing against the full factory Ferrari team. I mean, they were out there with, you know, uh, four or five cars, all their mechanics, everything gone. Uh, And at the end of the season, when we were so successful, Ford announced that he was going to quit GT racing. He just knew he couldn't compete. So at that point, he, was, he had said, well, I don't want to compete against my privateers, my gentleman racer, so I'm going to leave GT racing up to the customers. So when we raced against uh, the Ferrari customers in 1965, and this is Alan Mann running the team, the competition was much, much less uh, than we'd had in 1964, because it was not factory-backed. It was all privateers. So it was essentially a walkover. And that's not to discredit Alan Mann or, or any of the great drivers that we had over there, but it was a whole different ballgame from 1964 to
0: 1965. The, um, okay, because the, the the final deciding race, wasn't at Reims, France? And was it at Le Mans, was it? Or that car didn't race Le Mans 65? Is that what the, what, I can't remember the whole history. Well,
4: in, in 1964, the reason that we did not win the championship uh, there were two reasons, but basically, the last race of the season was going to be at Monza. Okay. And at that point, because uh, of the races, the way that we had gotten points through the year, Ford actually had, I think, you know, three or four more points for the championship than we did, and we were going to go to Monza. And up until that time, we only had two cars running, and of course, he had, you know, four or five cars and backup cars and everything. And when it came to run at Monza, we were going to have four cars. Ferrari could see the writing on the wall. There was no way that he was going to win. So he uh, had a tremendous amount of political power in Italy, and he went to the Auto Club d'Italia and convinced him to take the FIA points consideration off the race. The race, nothing was ever in the public or in the, uh, to the press or anything. The race still took, took place but the FIA points were removed, and at that point that the points were removed, none of the factories showed up. Only Ferrari went to Monza, and of course, by the end of the season, he still had those three points, and he technically ended up winning the championship, but only by default.
0: Ah, okay. What was Ken Miles like? Give us some Ken Miles stories, because I know you and him were pretty good friends.
4: Well, Ken Miles was the ultimate gentleman, uh, a great engineer, a great driver, and a guy who put it out exactly as it was. He never, uh, you know, sweet-talked anything. He always said exactly what the truth was, whether you wanted to hear it or not. And that uh, kind of put off a lot of people because he was just such a straight straight talker. And uh, if he didn't agree with something, he'd tell you. And uh, uh, that rubbed a lot of people the long way. And, of course, there was a lot of friction within Shelby American, because Ken had uh, been an advisor to uh, an earlier project uh, that was done by Lance Reventlow called The Scarabs in mm-hmm. 1957. And at that point, uh, Ken Miles and uh, Phil Remington, who was the head of the of the program for Lance Reventlow when they were very, very successful, uh, had, had had some uh, differences on the way things should be designed. So there never was a a great friendship uh, between Ken and uh, and Phil, and they were two of the of the best out there, the top driver engineer, and the top fabrication engineer. Uh, and if it had not been for Phil Remington, Shelby American would have been nothing because he was the guy that made everything work.
0: There, you had another guy in the shop there, um, Olson. Was he the like the the this amazing engine builder? Because I heard stories about him oh, as well.
4: One of, one of three or four top engine builders that we had in the shop, and we had three teams of, of engine builders, and they actually competed against each other on a friendly way. Uh, um, by knowing the whole uh, Southern California performance industry, they knew who was making the best camshafts or the best uh, connecting rods or the best bearings or the best, you know, whatever it was, springs or valves or whatever, and they'd, all, they'd compete against each other and build their own engines and each engine would go into one of our cars during the race and that way we could compare objectively what was going on. After that, <clears throat> the best of, the, of each of those engines would be selected out and go, go into the next session. So that was the development program that we had uh, that made those Ford uh, Cobra engines so successful that the guys developed them on their own and competed against each other And what happened in 1965, uh, when we signed on with Ford, uh, the director of racing at that time was a guy named Jack Passano. And uh, he came down uh, and he laid out the law. He says, okay, no more of these Southern California hot rod parts in these cars. Every engine is going to be built with Ford parts. And everybody looked at each other and they just knew, that's not the way to go. The way to go is, the successful way that we had built these engines. And uh, I, the the biggest mistake that we made at that point was that all the guys had to use existing Ford parts. Now, Ford parts are not always made by Ford itself. It's made by outside suppliers. So in building all of these engines, getting ready for Le Mans in 1965, which is the main, main race of the season, the major, major, we knew that Ferrari was coming with 12 cars, we were going over there with 12 cars. So everything that we put into those engines was to, to go on and make them win. The problem was that the rod bolts, the head studs that held all the cylinder heads on, had not been pr- properly heat treated. And so we built all of these engines, and then one of our mechanics started rechecking these engines and retorquing the heads. You know, we're getting ready to go to Le Mans. He starts torquing the heads and all these bolts are stretching. And he knew right then that, you know, we had a major problem because if we did not correct this at that point, all these engines were going to start losing head gaskets and we wouldn't finish any races. And he went back uh, to Ford uh, to pass and explain that. He said, you know, we've got a major problem with all these engines. And Ford overruled them, and we went to Le Mans and... Uh, 10 of those engines blew up oh. and we knew that they were going to fail. So it was a, a major, major problem. Uh, again, it was the bureaucratic error and, uh, it should never have happened. If we'd gone ahead with the major program that we had with only building engines or any of the other guys, uh, we would have, uh, won that race easily. And, um, uh, as it was, all the four all the Ferraris, blew up as well. It was a major, major <laughs> war, and nobody won.
0: Uh, give us a Tweedy story, real quick, because uh, Tweedy was the factory team race car painter. Um, he, was, he lived in this area for a long time. I know I used to go with him a lot. Him and I became pretty good friends, and I used to take him to a lot of the Shelby meets. But since we're on the subject real quick, and he was your the factory. Well, was,
4: Tweety was one of the, the you know, great team guys that we had there in and, and, and charge of making sure that the cars always looked beautiful whenever we went to the races. And uh, he just uh, he took such pride in his work that he'd, every time that he'd finish a paint job, he'd say, how can I make that car look better, shall I put more metallic in it or more pearl in it or more blue in it or more red in it or whatever. So even though we were supposed to be running this official Ford color called Guardsman Blue, he always made a (laughs) slight change in it. And uh, they were always, they looked slightly different at each race, and they looked beautiful. So uh, he was a guy that just, like all the rest of our mechanics, just took great personal pride in the work that he did.
0: You had an amazing team, um just and, and obviously uh, the history books show that. Now I think you did you you didn't work at Lance Reventlow, but you worked for another guy that was building some old hot rods back in the day and doing some road racing and that was uh let me think, if I can pronounce the name right, Max Bak house Yeah, yeah. Max
4: Belchowski. Okay. Uh, Max Belchowski was one of the leading racers in Southern California. But he was a he was a hero of the blue-collar guys, whereas most of the guys he was racing against were wealthy rich sportsmen who bought the latest Ferraris and Maseratis, and they brought in guys like Dan Gurney or Ken Miles or you know any of the top drivers to drive their cars. And against them was this guy uh, that was building these Buick-powered hot rods in Los Angeles, and that was Max Belchowski. And uh, he made his cars purposely a little ugly looking <laughs> so that they would be a, a major major contrast to these guys that showed up with a 40-foot trailer and all their mechanics and beautifully shined ferraris and whatever and he actually drove his buick powered old yeller uh race car out to the races all the time he never owned a trailer always drove it to the races really and uh he and his wife would follow along. He'd hire one of us in the shop to drive the car out to the races, and he and Ina, and his wife, would come along in their Buick behind, uh, you know, with a with a jack and uh, a set of mufflers uh, or straight pipes that he'd put on out the races to replace the mufflers that we used driving out there on the street. And then he'd race this old hot rod car against these all these major, major guys and Ferraris and stuff. And won a great, great series of races. He was a fabulous, fabulous uh engineer uh but did everything very very practically and and built everything with the minimum cost that he could. you know he knew all which parts would interchange, and he knew all the guys at the top junkyard <laughs> wherever he needed to get parts so it was it was a major 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 education working for him. Not only was he um interested in cars uh he was a great patriot for america and knew exactly what was going on politically all of the time and uh, could explain what was going on in the background uh, pretty much as we have today where everything that you see in the newspapers and the media is all false news and then later you learn the truth today we have the internet and uh, we can learn all that through alternate news but in those days uh, you had to have friends all the way through in government or in the intelligence or in law enforcement or something to tell you what the real story was. And he took a great interest in that as well as his racing.
0: Now, you're uh, you're a fellow Marin County guy like me. You're from Sausalito. I'm from San Rafael. Right. And you have the distinction of being the youngest... I think designer that uh, that that uh, graduated from the Art Center, and I and I re- what I really want to do, and, and we'll have to do a special segment. I really like to do just a story, just a segment, just on the Art Center because that's an amazing school, and some amazing talent came out of there. So, you, when you left, you you wanted to be, I think, a race car driver. How did the how did well, you go? That
4: was f- my, my main goal from okay. the time I was 12 years old because I started working in a garage in South Southledo when I was 12. Uh-huh. You know, I. Bicycle over there after school just to sweep the floor and you know wipe the tools and watch those guys working on cars. I mean I didn't know anything about that. I, that was how I was learning. Uh-huh. And then on the weekends that we'd go racing and I'd go with them and you know so I I I got the whole racing bug. You know years years before at that time you had to be 21 to get your license. So all of those years from 12 to 21, uh, that was my goal was to be a race car driver, but. During that time, I also learned what it cost to go racing and realized that, you know, I was never going to have that kind of money, so I had to have some sort of a job to fall back on. And at that time, of course, you know, your parents want you to go to college, and and I had good grades, and, you know, I made it into Stanford. Wow. And after I'd been there, uh, made it into Stanford for a year, I realized that, you know, there was no future in in, uh, an academic education for a guy like me. Uh, and I'd heard about this school in Southern California that uh, could teach you how to design cars. I didn't have any art background at all, but I, on Easter vacation, I, I drove my hot rod Ford down to Art Center and uh, walked in the back with the students and, and hung around in a couple of classes for a couple hours and knew right then that that's where I wanted to go to school and what I wanted to do for, for a real, real job in my life. But I was, I was still 18 years old at that time. And uh, I still wanted to be a race driver, but at least I had a, a, a real education going at that point, with a goal. And the more time that I was there, the end of the uh, the uh, end product was designed for me, and I realized that was really the direction that I wanted to go.
0: So, when you were at the Art Center, because you have uh, the distinction of also being the person that penned the original Stingray, did you do that at the Art Center, or was that something, I mean, kind of like a sketch, and then when you ultimately went to the GM, uh, and then you worked with, I mean, some of the greats like uh, Bill Mitchell, and people like that, and under Ed Cole, and some of the most legendary. Well,
4: there was was an interesting thing going on at the time that I came into (laughs) General Motors in, in 1956. Uh, At that time, there was a major change going on because Harley Earl, who was the father of automotive design, had gone into GM in 1927 and literally created the idea of automotive design. Prior to that point, the cars had been designed by engineers, and Harley Earl had worked on a uh, a custom body shop out in Hollywood, building cars uh, with custom bodies for the stars, and uh, Fred Donner, who was at that time the the head of General Motors, had seen some of these beautiful reworked custom-bodied cars that had been designed by Harley Earl and asked him to come back to General Motors and set up a design studio there. So Harley Earl created the world of automotive design for General Motors. So from 1927 until I came in there in uh, in 1956, uh, he had led... uh, General Motors and design, and they'd become the number one company in the world. At that point, he was planning on retiring, and his right-hand guy who had been with him again for you know some 20 years or so was Bill Mitchell. And Bill was uh, another guy who had really learned the art of design and the importance of how to market cars by design and was taking over. And his idea was to build a whole new look for General Motors. The other thing that had happened at that particular time is that Harley Earl had designed uh, with his team the very first Corvette, which was shown uh, in New York uh, in, uh, let's see, it was uh, 1953. They showed it at New York at the Motorama. And at that point, uh, a very interesting guy named Zora Arkus Duntoff had seen that car at the auto show. And realized that it was basically a car that uh, was kind of really racy looking, but it was not a real sports car. And that he, uh, because he had a lot of background, he'd raced for Porsche, he'd worked for Allied in the U- in the UK, and he knew the head of uh, uh, engineering at General Motors, and convinced him that he could come in and take take over that program, and make a real sports car out of the Corvette. So uh, he came in and began improving the Corvette, always trying to improve it, always trying to improve. And of course, he was always finding a uh, major, major battle with the financial people because they were simply wanting to build the car as cheaply as possible. They didn't understand the importance of why a sports car had to be a better automobile than every other car. So in the end, he talked of uh, Harley Earl. He said, look, the real way to go racing is the way that we do it in Europe. We make a production car, and then we make a prototype race car, and we race that car and show what the top engineering is that we're building, and that will eventually go into the production cars. So they ended up building a very, very beautiful prototype car called the Corvette SF, which ran at Sebring in 1957. The only thing that Zora could not get GM Engineering to change over with brakes. At that time, uh, this is 1957. By that time, uh, the uh, Gerling and Dunlop disc brakes had been developed in England and had proven themselves at Le Mans, on allowing Jaguar to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans because they had superior brakes. And Zora wanted to put, you know, some good brakes on this car, but he could not get any of the top gen. General Motors engineering people to put on the brakes. So they built this great fast car, but uh, they had to the use of, of modified uh, Buick drums, which were very good for the, at the time, but they just weren't uh, on the equal of, of disc brakes. So uh, Zora and had the uh, Corvette SS down there. He asked Juan Manuel Fangio to drive the car, and Fangio went out and broke the lap record in the car, but it could only go two laps and the brakes would fade. So he came in and said, you know, it's a great car, you know, with about uh, six months of development, this, brakes, this car would be a, a flat-out winner in the world, but uh, thank you, but no thanks, I'll drive a Maserati for the race. <laughs> so uh, uh, Zora asked uh, Sterling Moss to come over and try the car out. Sterling did exactly the same thing, went out there, Matched Bongio's time in it, broke the lap record, came in and said, It's a junk heap after two laps because the, the brakes are gone. It won't stop. And thanks, but no thanks. And he also drove a Maserati. And of course, the Maseratis won the race. Uh, this Corvette SS had started the race that lasted just a few laps and they parked it because it didn't have any brakes. So that was the end of the program. The other program that got killed off at that time was all of the performance was killed off uh, because all of the manufacturers, uh, primarily uh, General Motors, were concerned with a lot of street racing that was going on, and they didn't want to be anywhere near uh, having any liability for people getting hurt with automobiles. So they got together with all the rest of the manufacturers and what they call the AMA ban, American Automobile Manufacturers Association ban on performance. So that cut off all advertising, all promotion, and all programs within the companies that were involved with racing. That included NASCAR, drag racing, oval track racing, and of course, the Corvette program. So the Corvette program was killed at that point uh, at the end of 1956. Uh, This is a C1 Corvette still, a solid axle car. So that program was killed off, and there are no more Corvettes that are going to be built. Now the same thing that was going on as I explained before, uh, Bill Mitchell was going to take over from Harley Earl, and he was a racer at heart. He had gasoline in his veins. In his veins, he loved racing, and he loved the Corvette program. He said, "Well, that may be management's decision, but it's not mine. Uh, I'm going to build the Corvette program anyway." And so he decided that he would build a new Corvette in secret. Now, he couldn't take that program upstairs to the regular Chevrolet studio where it was originally designed. He had to take it down to the advanced concept studios, and that's where I was working, because when I had gone to work as General Motors, that's where they put the new, new designers in there, what we might call an intern program. And uh, you worked in advanced concepts, and that way the uh, studio heads from above could come down and see what you're doing and see which... Young designers looked like they might be good for their studios upstairs where all the production cars were done. So anyway, uh, Bill Mitchell had gone over the Turin show in uh, 1955, uh, 56, came back with a bunch of pictures of all of the uh, prototype cars and the concept cars that were being done in Italy at that time and could see that there was a steam developing over there. uh, And he laid out all these photographs you know, came into the studio. There were four of us, young designers, in there. And we'd never met Bill Mitchell, of course. Here's the vice president of design coming downstairs to advance concept, talking to these young guys. Who we're all about the same age 19, 20, 21, 22, something like that. And we're looking at each other, and he's telling us that he wants us to design the new Corvette. And, you know, we're looking at each other like this can't be real. So he actually explained what all the politics were that the program had been cut off and it couldn't be done upstairs. But his intention was to design a new car, and asked us to design it. So anyway, to make the long story short, out of all of the sketches that were put up on the wall and everything, he selected my work out as the direction that it would be on the new Corvette, and that became the new uh, car called the Stingray. So. Bill Mitchell is the actual designer of the car because he's directing exactly what he wanted done and picked our sketches off the wall on the basis of what his brief was, what he'd sent in Europe. And, uh, and my interpretation of his ideas is what he accepted. And that became the, uh, became the prototype of uh, Stingray right, called the XT87, which was the concept car. It was the Roadster. At that point, I turned 21. I wanted to get back into racing, so I went back to California and went to work for Max Belchowski with my first race car. (laughs) And at that point, Larry Shinoda and uh, Tony Lapine came in and took everything that I designed and took it upstairs. And uh, they, uh, they did all the drawings for the production of 63 Corvette. So it's basically my concept car became the production car and that was done by Larry Shinoda and uh, Tony Lapine. At that point, Tony Lapine left for Europe, became uh, one of the advanced guys over at Opel, and uh, was going to set up a similar studio over there to what Bill Mitchell had been doing in in, uh, Detroit. And at that point, Porsche offered him a job, and he became the head of Porsche Design for about 30 years.
0: Oh, really? So
4: he influenced all of the... uh, all of the late courses, all the 900-series Porsches, the 924, the 928, the 936, all of those cars. And then uh, Larry, of course, uh, got sideways with some of the people at GM, so he left and he went over to Ford, and uh, he designed a lot of great cars for Ford, including the Mach 1s, Mach 1 Mustangs.
0: And the Boss 302s, and the Boss 9s. yeah.
4: Absolutely.
0: Well, I to, we got a minute or two left, and I can tell you right now, and i got to ask you this, are you going to be available next week, same time, same station, because I would like to go to for, part two. I had Alan Grant on earlier this year, I think, and we. Alan was so interesting too, and his stories were amazing, that we actually had to do a two-part segment. So, And you and I have talked about this before, but I would love to have you on again next week so we could kind of maybe pick up where we're going to finish here in a second on the Corvette. Would you be uh, available to do that?
4: Uh, what's that, on the, uh, Next on the 29th? Next Tuesday. Yeah, I yeah, think. Tuesday the 29th. Yeah, I'll, I'll mark that down on the calendar, and I'll uh, see you same time, same station.
0: Yeah, that's great. Now, you have a book out uh, on the Corvette, so if people want to find out more about that book, how do they go about getting that book?
4: Well, you can come to our website. I've done actually three or four different books, uh, one on the Corvettes, of course,
2: mm-hmm. and
4: one on the, on the Stingray. Uh, and then from, went on to designing the Daytona Cobras. And then recently, my last book was on uh, the last work I did for Carol over in Italy, working with Di Tommaso on de- designing a Can-Am car. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but all those books, you can find those if you come uh, to uh, just look uh, our name up on uh, on the Internet, at Brock Racing Enterprises, or it's uh, just Uh, www, uh B R E, numeral2.net, and that'll bring you into our website and show you all the products and books and everything that we build.
0: You were talking about Harley Earl, and I think we got like a minute or two left, but uh, somewhere I was reading or I was listening to an interview, and Harley Earl apparently, when they came out with the 53 Corvette, was almost dimensionally similar to the jaguar 120 because he was so impressed with that car and uh and there, there's a...
4: absolutely he had brought an xk 120 in the studio took all the dimensions off the jaguar so if you sit in a, in a 53 uh corvette it's just like you're sitting in an xk 120 because all the dimensions were taken directly off the 120.
0: interesting interesting and uh, so, uh, but anyway, so you've got some just amazing stories. And of course, you know, there's, there's, I got a whole list of stuff here that I was going to ask you. i want to talk about the, the De Tomaso, the hang gliding, the BRE days, the Lang Cooper, the Nethercut Mirage. I never heard about that before. And I, I don't think we have enough time to go into that, but that's something. You did uh, a, the Triumph TR 250K that actually raced at Sebring. I want to talk yep. about that. Yep. Um, just, just some amazing, the, the Toyota JP car. And I know that was like in the mid 60s, mid 60s, 60s. 60, Sixty-seven or something like that. You were touring right. around with those, touring around toying around, yep. you know, playing so. words. <laughs> Sixty-nine. Okay. And uh, I just, just you, you're just an incredible person. I mean, I got to tell you this. <laughs> I know we were talking about this once before, and again, I know you've, I've known you for a long time, and I know you mentioned once before. It's, it's not me. You surround yourself by the best people. Roger Penske told me that Carol Shelby told me that. I even quoted it earlier on the show, but I got to tell you and, and we'll go into this next week because later in life you came up with another company you started and that's AeroVault. Now, you probably started that kind of a little bit later in life and to me as from an entrepreneurial standpoint, that is a serious inspiration. It really is. And I got to tell you, Pete, I mean this sincerely. You know, for because I'm going through some changes myself right now and I got some ideas from some stuff. So, basically your in summary is it's, it's it's never too late. You just keep, if, it's, if you're passionate about it and you have it in, your, in you, go for it, right? That's basically what you would tell everybody?
4: Well, if you build something that people want, uh, obviously you create a market for something, but then you got to figure out how to do it. And luckily I've got a wife that's a great business manager and uh, she runs the whole company. And you know, all I did was design it and she runs the company and we build the best pro- product in the world.
0: That's amazing. Air Vault. All right, Pete, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this week. Uh, we'll look forward to having you on. We'll do part two next week. And again, uh, hello to your wife. Have fun at the uh, Las Vegas uh, concourse this weekend. And uh, in the meantime, you take care, all right?
4: Okay. We'll talk to you later, Rob.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank my special guest, the legendary, the one, the only, the greatest automobile designer of the 20th century, Peter Brock. Just, just an amazing guy. Definitely check out his website, BRE Enterprises, Brock Racing Enterprises, and uh, just a really, really cool guy. I can't say enough good stuff about him. But anyway, hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to the Seltzer Gretting Cars. Don't forget, this weekend's Downtown Safety Harbor, British Car Show, Tampa Bay British Car Club. You're going to see Haley's, you're going to see Jags, you're going to see uh, Triumphs, you're going to see MGs. You'll even get a chance to uh, hang out with us a little bit and meet Money Moneypenny. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.